also Mark. And welcome to The Marking Show. Just so we're clear, we are both called Mark. That is correct. Join us each week as we understand the principles that make businesses succeed. Each week, we'll lead into a new marketing concept to uncover a new piece of the puzzle. We're a couple of marketing guys who are passionate about the craft and always hungry to learn more. So we're excited to have you along for our learning journey. And on today's episode, we'll be learning about... Fashion, fashion marketing! marketing. Woo! Well, Mark, um, I am wearing uh, my finest clothes today. I've got um, a, a big, big gold chain um, and a, just a very big statement hat at the moment. To be fair, you look exactly how you always look. <laughs> <laughs> look, I, I'm striking a pose. I'm ready. Yeah, exactly. We've got um, photographers outside that are capturing this podcast at the moment because um, we are yeah just dre- dressed to the nines to learn about fashion marketing. <laughs> Um, look, really, really interesting topic to learn about yeah. today. Um, lots of parallels to a lot of other industries as well, which we'll learn about throughout the mm. episode as well, I think. Yeah, so um, I guess in terms of just upfront, what are we going to be learning about when we're defining fashion? Um, we're going to be looking at, uh, at clothing that is used mostly for aesthetic, non-functional purposes. Um, and it's really interesting, right? Like when we think about defining fashion, there has to be a temporal element to fashion. So because something is in fashion at the moment means that at some point it will go out of fashion Mm. as well, um, which is really different to what we could call anti-fashion, uh, which is something that will always be on trend and in season. So an example of that could be a uniform, for example, which Mm. you'd wear functionally for a really long period of time, or maybe some cultural dress, which its aesthetics doesn't change for a long period of time as well. Yeah, and I think it's important that we talked about fashion is less about sort of the function of the clothing or paraphernalia you might be wearing and more about the the look or the aesthetic of it. Um, But also it usually came from a place of being functional first. So, you know, that we invented jackets because it was cold. But then since then, we've sort of iterated on the jacket from a purely aesthetic um, point of view. And and that leads into a very similar definition that I got as well, which was um, it's the process of monetizing that aesthetic vision yeah. through whether it's clothing or accessories or even peripheral products or services like uh, think about stylists and things like that. Yeah, definitely. Mm. I think um, to frame up, I guess, the world of fashion, it's really important for us to think about its function and how we even got to a place where things could be in fashion through the clothes Mm -hmm. that we wear to cover ourselves um, as human beings. So I think um, it's interesting to learn that up until the mid-19th century, um, all clothing was custom-made for people. So it had to be hand-stitched, it had to be sewn, whether they were you know, really nice uh, pieces of clothing that were for the royals at the time or just for functional pieces of clothing for people at the time. Everything had to be handmade and hand, uh, hand-sewn. However, with the invention of the sewing machine, um, you could have identical pieces of clothing where there, you know, there were pieces of clothing that were very similar because they could be made in a very similar way. And when you have pieces of clothing that aesthetically can appear quite similar, then you can have things where that piece of clothing can take on different meaning and Mm. you can become or form part of different groups and different social norms that um, come from that visual. So it's really interesting that that's how things could become in fashion and could also become trends because of those uh, mechanical developments yeah, as well. Yeah, like that was the point that people could see someone else wearing something and actually yeah. go out and buy it themselves um, when it was sort of readily available due to the sewing machine. Um, but yeah, fashion is 
is that history of fashion is, is so interesting. I mean, how it's come from that functional form to, to sort of that aesthetic, you know, lifestyle, I guess it can, yeah. it can mean for some people. And I think it's also important to look at, you know, within the history of fa- fashion, you've got like these longer term trends and then you've got these shorter term, mm. like, uh, things that are in fashion as you said and and one of those i came across as an example of how this differs is that the the longer term thing might be denim pants right but then Mm. the short term trend might be rips in your jeans Jeans, yeah so so yeah it's interesting to see how you have like these really long-term functional Mm. um, pieces of clothing that then still get to become part of trends through time yeah exactly and i think um as with a lot of branding the interesting marketing concept we think about uh, pieces of material as, as forming parts of your identity or, or brands expressing your identity is that mm. oftentimes their uh, fashion will serve as an external indicator to potentially internal traits. So they're um, a physical representation of intangible things. So for example, if you know, for example, that um, ripped jeans are really cool and in right now, and you're mixing that with some other trending, uh, trendy items, you might be perceived as a person that is quite knowledgeable on culture and, and things that are um, really cool and in the know, and, and you can show that knowledge by the things you wear. Um, alternatively, if you are a person that is very wealthy and you're, you're wearing very high-priced items that can be easily identified, that might also be an external indicator of an internal or an intangible trait, mm. um, which is really, really interesting. Yeah, it's there's so many of these. Yeah. Right? But like, if you say wear t-shirts, but then a suit jacket to work and maybe clear framed glasses, you might be seen as more creative. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or I might just be looking in the mirror. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, really, really interesting. Um, Mark, do you have any uh, stats to kick us off for, for today? Yeah, look, you know I love a, a bit love of a data, start, yeah. some quotes. I actually have a great quote to kick us off first. Um, So thinking about fashion and trends, uh, here's a quote from Peter Drucker to get us in the mood. Um, The best way to predict the future is to create it. Mm. So we're going to talk about fashion trends later, but fashion is one of those industries where if you aren't changing constantly, Mm. you're probably not doing a very good job unless you're making uniforms, as you said, Mm. uh, or white business shirts, say. Mm. But even the the cut and style of those would change. So this is to think about how are you always going to create that future? How are you going to set the trend rather than chase the trend? Mm. Uh, But some stats. So uh, e-commerce is getting a lot bigger for fashion, especially. Uh, So between 2013 and 2017, uh, e-commerce fashion businesses actually grew at four times the rate of brick and mortar. Mm. That was from a McKinsey State of Fashion study in um, 2019 so really fresh wow, very recent, yeah. yeah um and that was in conjunction with a business called the business of fashion which plug they have their own podcast which i listen to business oh, of nice. fashion really worth yeah. um a look or a listen because it's they talk about fashion but they're also talking about things that are happening in society that might impact fashion mm. like um, societal trends and, and things like that uh 97% of fashion industry profits are realized by 20 companies yeah, wow. So it's like that 80-20 rule on steroids. Yeah. Um, so the uh, 12 of the top 20 have actually been there for over a decade. So there's not a lot of movement. Mm. And then most of them are luxury yeah. uh, luxury brands. So question for you, mm. what is the biggest fashion company in the world? Ooh. Is it the uh, Louis Vuitton house? Okay. No, that's no. number three. Wow. Mm. Bronze. Yeah, bronze. Wow. Who, who takes the gold? So gold goes to... Inditex. Ah. Um, for those of you who don't know what Inditex is, mm. like me, I didn't know. Inditex owns brands like Zara, yeah. uh, Bershka, uh, Pull and Bear, and Stradivarius. Wow. 
really yeah. taking over the world of fast fashion and just general fashion. In that, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So they're, they're huge. Uh, second was Nike. Nice. Mm. So yeah, some really big companies in there. And then these are some of the biggest companies in the world, not just in fashion. So yeah. yeah, it's big business, but not a lot of movement in terms of those top brands. Yeah. Wow. So that's sort of my, my data and stats. Why yeah. don't you take us into some principles that you found? Yeah, look, so I think um, lots of really interesting principles for us to, to look into the world of fashion, how they might be applied to different brands or businesses. Um, I think the, the first and most important principle to, to think about when it comes to fashion marketing is the concept of seasonality. Mm. Um, so I think the more I researched this, the more I, I you know, got to learn about how like fashion operates on this like really specific cycle where a lot of things interconnect at different temporal times throughout the year. So m- first and most obvious one is that because at the end of the day, we are wearing clothes to cover ourselves from the elements, whether that's air conditioning or from the outside. Correct. Um, weather has a huge component uh, to factor into that. And because of that, um, there are two big kind of selling periods for fashion brands throughout the year, and they're usually paired. So that will be for spring, summer, and also for autumn, winter. Mm. Um, and because you can be changing your wardrobe for those different times based on different clothing requirements at the time. Um, on top of that, we also have fashion week, which feeds into that really, really well. So there are lots of different uh, fashion weeks that occur at different points of time throughout the world. But the most important ones to keep in mind are actually what they refer to as the big four. Um, and the big four fashion weeks throughout the world are New York, London, Milan, and Paris. And I guess in terms of hierarchy, they land in that particular order as well. So that's where the top trends for the coming uh, six months will, will be shown and will be seen to the public. And that point is really, really important is that whenever uh, those trends are shown at fashion week, they're always living six months into the future, which is really, really, really cool. So if you think about yourself as a fashion business or you're, you're a clothing brand that fits into that cycle, um, the way that works from, from the back end is that oftentimes people will be conducting uh, market, tre- market research and trend forecasting. Then they'll go into a design phase. Then they'll look at material sourcing. Then they'll do a very small production run to show at Fashion Week. Uh, if they'll show those clothing pieces at Fashion Week and those different designs. And if people like it, they'll find a way to produce those at a larger quantity to sell them into retailers mm. um, within that six-month period of showing and hitting the shelves. So the, that operates in a cycle year on year and has throughout uh, many, many different years. And the key thing that changes oftentimes is at which show um, do you tend to display your clothing at a collection? Mm. And then how does that impact your selling to the different retailers? It's really, really interesting. It's so supply chain intensive. Yeah. Right? Like it's crazy, like short timelines to, to see if something's worked at the fashion show and then get it into stores pretty much straight away, you know, as quickly as possible. Um, but something you touched on there and just before I dive into some supply chain stuff was that sort of that market research and trend yeah. um, analysis. And so I found this trend called Normcore, which I, I'm not sure if you've come across this or not, Mark. No, well, I I've have just by looking at my wardrobe. <laughs> yeah, well, well, that's the thing is I I, uh, I didn't know what Normcore was, but I've definitely seen it, and now I just know the name of it. But essentially, for anyone who doesn't know what it is, Normcore fashion is uh, people who are wearing sort of uh, nondescript, like plain color clothing. So maybe sort of baggy jeans with like dad sneakers on mm-hmm. and uh, a knitted turtleneck with no branding or anything on it. 
Yeah, nice. I feel like you're just just literally describing um, what I'm wearing right now. To <laughs> yeah, I actually just looked at you <laughs> and <laughs> named every piece of clothing you're wearing. But so you might have come across this. It looks kind of like '90s dad chic. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I guess the 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 heroes of this fashion trend or the people that people are sort of emulating are maybe like Jerry Seinfeld or or Steve Jobs mm. or, or something. Some people like that. Uh, but I was reading about how that trend started. And mm. apparently it came from an agency called K-Hole uh, in Europe. Yeah, nice. Uh, yeah. And, um, and they uh, pitched the trend as they're, they're a trend analysis company in fashion. Mm. And they said, hey, this is what we think is coming. We think the youth is sort of rebelling against individuality and popularism through Instagram and all of this. And mm. they're, they're sort of going in the complete opposite direction and trying to make themselves be non-individual. And they're going for this norm, norm core look. Uh, and they said that, and all the fashion companies sort of ate it up and produced these clothes, and then it's become a massive trend, essentially. So all of the fashion companies produce clothes like this, people go and buy it, they see it on Instagram, et cetera, et cetera. It, mm. it self-perpetuates. Um, but the, the thing I heard about Normcore was that it was actually made-up analysis. It was, it was a trick. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it That's was fascinating. From what I was reading online, it was, it was made up. There wasn't really any solid analysis done i guess it's just to say with trends can come from anywhere uh and and we don't really know whether they're sort of started by a person or an influencer all the time or whether it's just a made-up one by a company sort of having a laugh but i guess if you can make it fashionable and people like it and buy it it becomes a full-on trend yeah definitely and i think um learning more about how trends operate within the fashion industry um, we came across a trend forecasting company called uh, WGSN, mm. um, and they specialize in forecasting what's going to be cool. And that can be everything from particular items of clothing to the way that they're going to be styled to even looking at what colors are going to be on trend um, within the coming seasons. And it's kind of like this little known secret that the entire industry uses when it mm. comes to forecasting their shows. Um, mm. And a lot of people use this amazing data platform uh, to research certain trends. The caveat is that oftentimes they can only accurately forecast two years in advance, which I think is still pretty awesome. Yeah, it's cool. And I know we've spoken about before in our creative episode, like what the color of the year is, like the yeah. PMS color of the year. And this is sort of giving you that insight into what the color of the year might be in two years time. Exactly. It. Like I'm honestly tempted to get a personal subscription, except um, I'd have to sell all of my dad's sneakers and <laughs> thin gold chains <laughs> to probably support it. Yeah, they're not that thin. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, and look, this is like the, Nielsen database for fashion companies that want to look at trends. It's like a full-on business operational tool. Absolutely. And if you think about like the capabilities of cloud computing and AI in the future, um, the more time that fashion is going to be around, the more interconnected we are, the better this trend forecasting is going to be and the more accurate it will be. And it'll be less potentially about the individual stylist helping you pick your wardrobe um, as it will be a piece of software, which... Is, I, I, for one, welcome that. <laughs> yeah. No, it, it is really interesting. My favorite part about WGSN, yeah. was it? Uh, I, I'm forgetting right now. It's World Global... I can't remember the S and... I'm not sure. We'll include yeah. in the show, show notes. <laughs> show notes. But I, I just liked that it had the words world and global yeah. in their name. I thought that was really I'm cool. I'm going to take a massive step in the dark. I think it's going to be Style Network. Uh, no, that is it. <laughs> I, I do remember that. You just jumped my memory. Um, but yeah, world and global. I yeah. love it. Um, so look, that's on trends. But coming back to what you were talking about before, which is that sort of seasonality and I guess sort of like 
the the rhythm of how mm. the industry works with the fashion shows and then getting things in stores and what it made made me really think about was supply chain yeah because uh, that's what i like to spend my time thinking about <laughs> and uh, no but supply chain is super important for mm. the fashion industry and, and sort of a, a personal view i got out of studying this area of marketing was that supply chain is pretty much make or break so if you want to have a successful fashion company you need to be good at this stuff and the reason i say that is because speed to market now more than ever is crucial uh, mm. so just a little bit of a, of a data point here or a fact is that uh, for context in the 1960s if you ask consumers how long they would expect it to take t for something to arrive at their doorstep after they ordered it uh, the average sort of expected wait time was nine days wow today it's 24 hours so from clicking on the iconic mm. to arriving at your door, the expectation on average is 24 hours, which is crazy, yeah. right? Um, which means that if you want to be able to supply that demand, you need to be able to deliver that. But not only deliver to the consumer, as we said, have the latest trends as soon as they appear in fashion shows, you need to get them into your stores as quickly as possible. And, and for me, it means two things, because I think if you can nail that speed to market and that supply chain efficiency, you're going to have a really successful business, not just because you're fast to market, but because what you have to do to unlock that is going to make you a better business. And what I mean by that is being really across your sales analysis and mm. forecasting. So if you think about it, say you're, you have seasonal drops, um, but they're sort of dropping into store every six weeks because of upcoming fast moving fashion mm. trends. You need to make sure that you're predicting those and getting your new clothes made at your manufacturing plant and then into your store on time quick enough to be on trend. But when they get into store, you want to make sure that there's not old stock from the last season six weeks ago mm. sitting there still, because if there is, you're going to have to clear through that stock. So you're going to have to price promote it. You're not going to make much margin on it just to get the new stuff out in front of everybody. So if you're super good at forecasting and understand your sales trends, you can make sure that you sell out of your last season just on time for mm. your new stuff to drop. So then you're selling everything at as high a price as possible uh, and therefore as high a margin as possible. So it's really quite an intricate sort of supply chain sales analysis forecasting model that you have to employ to win in this game. Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, your favorite topic being supply chain outside of marketing, mine is procurement. And I think the really, <laughs> the really great way that procurement also leads into this is that because you have to have a really great supply chain set up to, to enable you to produce, you need to make sure that the people that are going to be producing your, your clothes even have access to the amount of raw materials they need to actually make your clothing. Mm. So, for example, let's say uh, we wanted to make a cool T-shirt with different styles of uh, materials also included to make the design complete. We have to make sure that the people we're buying the t-shirts from are even able to supply enough of the special cotton that we need to make so mm. that they can make the t-shirt for us at a particular point in time. Similarly, if there was a certain style of uh, vinyl that we wanted to put across it, we need to also make sure that because we're making X amount of t-shirts, uh, that that factory also has the ability to supply the additional amounts of vinyl that will go onto those t-shirts mm. um, and we're thinking about you know global supply chains at different seasons that might be difficult in certain parts of the world um, which is why we have you have to think about 
um, who's helping you and who's helping them along that chain. Yeah, it's important to remember that clothes don't just appear. You need these raw materials. And if, you know, there's a trend that's all of a sudden, you know, linen's massive and linen, let's say, is sourced from a country in South America, um, that that specific sourcing place needs to be ready for that demand. And, And if linen wasn't big, you know, six months before, mm. there might not be the sort of integrated setup ready to go to, to supply that demand for the factories to actually make those linen clothes. So it's um it's it's really sort of, uh, it goes way deeper than you'd think with clothing. Yeah, definitely. But one of the things that this brings me on to is when we talk about procurement and I guess sourcing of raw mm. materials is, uh, I guess, uh, sustainability in mm. the supply chain. Uh, because this is an industry which is particularly plagued with sustainability issues and manufacturing process issues. Um, we all have heard about sort of the sweatshop stories uh, and also maybe, you know, those factories polluting environments where they're, where they're set up. And this is a big one for fashion, but it's also a massive opportunity. Um, so consumers are becoming increasingly woke. Um, Mm. quotation that's from a McKinsey article I love that McKinsey (laughs) used the word woke um, and they actually put it in quotations I love that Uh, but they're they're, yeah very woke at the moment and they're they're aware of the um, I guess what these companies are doing to the environments that they operate in and the people that they are employing Uh, and there, it used to be, I guess, a bit of a tick box where a company could say, oh, we're doing something about it. And the consumer might go, oh, great, I think they're OK. But now consumers are actually rewarding the brands that are taking a really active stance and rewarding them by buying their products and paying a premium. Uh, and there are some great examples of, of brands that have been able to do this and are starting to actually beat traditional brands because they have this but my favorite example of of a company that's been able to drive a lot of hype for their brand and actually just a lot of sales which is what it all comes down to is adidas yeah well because adidas uh in uh 2017 launched the adidas by parlay uh shoes which are made out of ocean plastics so Mm. plastic that's in the ocean is a big problem and parlay is an organization that is trying to clean up our oceans uh and they pull this plastic out of the ocean and make shoes out of it um, in 2017, they sold a million shoes, which yeah. sounds like a lot, but for a company like Adidas is probably not the biggest amount of shoes yeah. for their global um, company. But in 2018, that stepped up to 5 million and they're, they're projecting uh, 11 million for 2019. So this is becoming a serious product for them. It's helping to save the oceans and that's part of the reason why people are buying it. But also they just look pretty cool. Like I kind of yeah. want to get some. They're 200 bucks a pop. Yeah. Uh, so they're, they're selling these at a premium to other shoes, uh, if you're not talking limited editions, that is. Yeah. Uh, and I know that, Mark, you only buy limited editions. <laughs> oh, exclusively. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, so this is actually a really cool business model for them, and they're doing the right thing. So it's a win-win. Yeah, definitely. And I think if you're maybe a smaller player, um, you know, thinking about, you know, if you where all of your materials are procured or sourced from, even if you don't maybe have complete visibility over your supply chain, let's say you're trusting a third party to mm. both source your materials and produce it, just being aware and understanding um, how they're also sourcing the materials for you as well. Um, and see if, there's, if there are optimizations or element where you can be considerate about how it might be affecting the environment and if there's anything you can do to help out. Yeah, exactly. Look, I think you need to be at least aware of what's going on because the consumer will be. Um, and you need to be able to answer some of those questions yeah, if you get asked. Yeah, definitely. I think rightfully so. Sometimes they, you know, it ca- could potentially cost a little bit more to, to supply those mm. types of raw mat- uh, those re- materials. Um, and if that's the case, working out, you know, from your PL, if you can still make it profitable, 
if you do need to charge a, a, a slightly higher price premium, uh, people might be willing to pay for that if they know that that's if it's being sustainably sourced and coming from a good place. Exactly, as Adidas showed us. Yeah, exactly it. Um, moving on, I think that gives us to a, a really good, interesting uh, point, which is around understanding our PNL and our, our profitability for our fashion brands. So mm. we know that oftentimes fashion can be a, an amazingly creative pursuit, and it, it definitely is. And we could probably do an entire episode just on fashion creative. Mm. Um, but knowing that because it is a creative industry, you know, we still need to be coming back to our commercials and understanding how it affects our business and how we're driving it forward. Um, and often the ways in which, uh, certain fashion brands will approach that will be by structuring their portfolio, uh, to have different levels or different tiers, um, within them. And this is something we've seen in, in other marketing categories, which we've started to study, but one of the things that that comes down to within fashion is oftentimes a where those products will be distributed so if they're distributed in limited retailers they might take more of a luxury approach or more of a limited approach whereas if they're mass they might uh pass on a different price point due to the different materials they might also be using Mm. so understanding that we you know how the different elements of the profit and loss statement might affect your brand depending on how you position it is really important. Yeah, I, I think price tiering is is really important in fashion uh, and and there's lots of ways to do it. And actually the guys that are, are really good at this are the, the more luxury brands. Yeah. And they call it in fashion brand diffusion. Uh, and, and what brand diffusion is, is sort of like you have your core brand and then you make sub brands that are sort of marketed to different, I guess, affluence levels. Mm. So just to, so you know what I'm talking about, if I say Giorgio Armani, mm. we then think the brand diffusion would be Emporio Armani and then Armani Exchange and then Armani Jeans and mm. so the list goes on. And they sort of, they get cheaper and cheaper. Uh, and the same thing, you've got Ralph Lauren and then Polo by Ralph Lauren is mm. their sort of cheaper version of that. Uh, my personal favorite though is Mark Jacobs mm. uh, <laughs> for, for two reasons. It's yeah, Mark with a C, which we can both sort of you know, get on board yeah. with. Yeah, um, great name. But also the fact that the, the Mark Jacobs brand diffusion is called Mark by Mark Jacobs. Awesome. Which I just thought <laughs> was like, what should I call it? <laughs> just put my name in there again. Yeah. Uh, so that's brand diffusion. And essentially it does yeah two things. It opens you up to have price tiering. Mm. Uh, but by doing that, you're then opening yourself up to a larger market. So you can get more share, more sales. And then you might have different profitabilities across those mm. price tiers. So you, you can sort of start to manipulate the margin mix within your business. Yeah, definitely. And I think uh, the cool thing about that taking that approach is that it enables to drive your consumers into something that we refer to as trade up, which means that you could start at the base model. But um, as you keep purchasing throughout the funnel, um, you can always has an option to uh, allow your customers to purchase a higher level of product which also in turn increases your margin Mm. so you as you develop that journey and you develop that customer relationship you also have the ability to continually increase your margin as well Mm. um, which is a really important strategy and keep people within the brand as well because they might start at that sort of your entry level like ready to wear sub brand uh, because that gives them the taste and they've always wanted that Armani piece of clothing and Mm. this gets them in and then they, they can sort of keep coming back and maybe stepping up those tiers, as you said, and trading up until they get to that, you know, top tier bespoke suit made by Giorgio Armani. Um, and, and that's where you sort of, you have them at that later date and you don't have to wait to start generating value from that consumer so long. Yeah, definitely. I think um, a way in which different fashion retailers have done it in the past um, 
which is maybe a, a tale of caution, to be honest with you, of, of when potentially focusing on the trends and not enough on the supply chain or the PNL can mm. can get into danger. Um, are some of the uh, smaller fast fashion retailers. So oftentimes they'll have the creative right, they'll have the trend right, but they might not have the complete uh, all the com- complete commercials right. So if you look at, uh, for example, Topshop, unfortunately has experienced a little bit of decline over the past years, but it's because they're offering the right product, which is quite on trend and the designs are quite cool, uh, but they're offering it at quite a low price. Um, and because they're offering it at a low price, they're having to use that low price to cover a lot of different costs. So they'll have to pay the costs of designers, they'll have to pay the cost of factories, they'll have to pay the costs of distribution of the physical t-shirts, for example. Um, but they'll also have to pay the costs of physical retail spaces mm. as well, which is a huge cost because not only do you have the actual real estate itself, you also have the cost of electricity of running mm. the, the retail chain. You have the cost of printing and updating decoration materials around your store. And you also have the cost of paying um, high qualified staff to run the store itself. So yeah. when you price that and you have a, a cheaper t-shirt that you're selling, to include all those different things within your funnel, no matter how cool the t-shirt is, it's gonna be really difficult for you to grow profitably from that. Um, so as a way to, I guess, counteract that, a lot of lower tier brands that are still relatively on trend have moved to more of a direct-to-consumer model because they know that they can offer a, a lower price, but they'll be saving that lower price and have enough gap between their cost of goods sold and their selling price because they're cutting out a lot of that traditional storefront or that shop front cost of maintaining a store. Yeah, it's it's a pretty tough business when you yeah. lay it out like that. I mean, you've, you've got to think that you've got to stay on trend. You've got to constantly drop new clothing lines. Yeah. You've, you've got to have a high street store. So because brick and mortar is still important, yeah. even though the e-commerce is growing so much, sometimes people do have those old habits and still want to try stuff on. You got to do all of that, pay all those costs, and then offer that t-shirt at $10. It's, it's hard to see how you can turn a profit uh, in these businesses. And one of the things I think that some brands do really well in fashion, and, and this is my personal favorite, Uniqlo, which we harped on a, a yeah. lot about in luxury marketing. But Uniqlo, I think have done something quite clever here, which is that they're essentially like Topshop or Zara, where they, they do have new things come in and trends and technologies that they, they introduce, but they also have a mix of classics. Mm. So if you, because when you're talking about you have to have the later styles and the, the costs are so high and the margins are so thin that, you know, Topshop say, mm. the way that you usually counteract that is with volume. Mm. And, and what Uniqlo does is they go, we're going to get volume on our staples like mm. chinos that yeah. just never go out of fashion or jeans. Uh, and, the, and they just pump volume through those. They do limited colors and keep it really simple. And that's where they make their margin, which then pays for the ability to be able to be on trend with the latest styles mm. that they can get in every six months or so. I think as well, bringing it back to the importance of supply chain within fashion, knowing that if they are, you know, leveraging volume uh, to grow, you know, a lot of their sales and their, and their top line because of uh, the chinos really popular, oftentimes they might be able to get like a really fancy limited edition pair of chinos at a very similar price from their factory because they're already generating mm. um, so much volume going through that factory on their base model of chino. 
um, which means that they can hopefully also decrease their supply chain costs as well because um, they're just selling so many chinos and, <laughs> yeah. the, and, the, and the factories are able to become a lot more efficient because of that scale as well. You're right. Line extensions become a very easy thing once you have that volume going through yeah. in a certain style. And, and, you know, I know we're both holding out for that pink chino from Uniqlo. I, it's a very specific shade of pink. <laughs> and I, I really hope if anyone is listening um, at Uniqlo that... You know, spring, summer, 2020. <laughs> yeah, I'm thinking like flamingo. Yeah, yeah, That's great. That's what I'm looking for. Yeah, I was thinking more of a fuchsia, but you know, oh, wow. as a, yeah, 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 it's great. <laughs> it also brings us on to another really important principle within fashion marketing, which is the principle of intellectual property. So mm. oftentimes when we're working in, the, in any creative industry, um, IP is really, really important. But IP in fashion, is, it's, it's kind of a gray area. Mm. Um because we know the way the cycle of fashion works and you do have these shows that pop up, you know, at really important moments where people show their best creative work, oftentimes because they haven't produced that product yet and it's not sellable, it's often not 100% licensed yet. So a lot of people will be watching these shows, maybe smaller players, and they'll see what's been designed and they'll be really quick with their supply chain mm. to turn around a really similar product that although might not have the same branding, looks exactly the same. Mm. Um, and that's where it becomes a really, really tricky gray area. Um, and that's not really strictly enforced. And a lot of uh, fast fashion companies have come under a lot of scrutiny because of this. Um, so it's one of those things to, to, to think about and watch out for that if you are creating something um, that is quite unique in the market, if you can find a way to, to license it and to brand it, um, you'll be able to protect yourself in the long run. Otherwise, you might have a lot of competitors um, that'll be following that. Mm. Now, there is, uh, I guess, the added complexity of who owns a trend, right? Yeah. Um, and while it's not something we're probably going to solve on this podcast, it's something to, to think about that if you are going to show your work and your creative work as a fashion brand, know that, especially within the internet, once it's seen, it might be imitated quite quickly. Mm. And that's something you might be able to use for your advantage, um, but it's been quite strategic about that at certain times, which is important. Yeah, it's it's very murky. And I think it's almost like, where does the inspiration end and the knockoff begin? Yeah. Uh, but one of the things I've seen just anecdotally is uh, in the watch world, yeah. that uh, you, you sort of, have these premium brands making like Rolex making watches and then you get lots of fakes like yeah. you go overseas and find lots of fakes in China or wherever you might mm. go um, but what sort of emerged more recently is people are going you know some of these fakes are so good like they're actually great watches with yeah. mechanical movements that they're they're good in their own right and and so there's been an emergence of micro brands of watches mm. where people are making really good quality watches that sort of look like some of the best ones or even have their own unique style uh, and they're high quality but they're at that price that someone will probably pay for a fake Rolex yeah a good fake if that's sort of possible um, but the other thing it makes me think about with knockoffs is I mean imitation is the highest form of flattery and uh, probably a lot of these people who couldn't like they wouldn't be able to buy your brand anyway mm. if you're really expensive i'm thinking that you see lots of louis vuitton bags that are fake mm. so it's almost another form of advertising because whilst it might be lost sales that mm. person might never have been able to buy your brand anyway and all they're doing is sort of showcasing your brand and how aspirational it is by buying a fake and then everyone sees that anyway so it's definitely not a good thing and it shouldn't be done the, these knockoffs but at the same time it's not a complete lose-lose. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. And I think it's like it's it's interesting to think about hacking that element, right? Um, and knowing that you know if you're operating in 
a style of product where you win based on uh, market share. The bigger the market, the bigger your share is going to be, and mm. therefore the bigger your return. So oftentimes, if you know you know that some people might uh, duplicate your IP, they might actually help you form that market itself. Let's let's say for example, if we take the market of uh, hot pink chinos from hopefully Uniqlo, that's going to make mm. this after this podcast. Um, if more people know about hot pink chinos and they become more of a trend, there's going to be a bigger market. And if there's even other people that are not Uniqlo that are going to be uh, manufacturing that and seeing that, there'll be a higher percentage chance that Uniqlo, Uniqlo could then come in and take a bigger percentage of that because just mm. more people are wearing it. Yeah. And we know it comes back to that principle that um, it's easy to grow by growing the category and helping everyone grow because a rising tide lifts all boats. I, I like that the, that way of putting it. The rising tide, or, that's really nice. Or a yeah. rising tide lifts all boat shoes. <laughs> <laughs> I do love a boat shoe. <laughs> so speaking of knockoffs and, and um, people sort of selling selling things, I it made me think of uh, the secondhand market. Yeah. Uh, this is a sort of like another sort of new business model that's emerged where people are going out and buying sort of limited edition sneakers and streetwear and then selling them online at a very, very high price because of that limited edition mm. nature. And um, there's, yeah, this place called StockX mm. that you can go to, and I was searching through there. And it's it's such an interesting thing because the manufacturer has to, I guess, start thinking about where it's going to end up and how mm. much it's going to sell for. Um, but there's this whole industry of people who are just doing that as a business, going out there and buying the latest limited edition sneakers and then putting them up on StockX. So it's something to think about within the fashion world is, mm. is there a way that you can sort of be a part of that uh, and, and help that to grow your brand even more? Um, but I had a quick look because yeah, I nice. was interested and, and I came across two things that I really liked. Mm. Uh, the first one was the, uh, the Nike Back to the Future high tops. Mm. I don't know if you've seen those. With yeah, the, 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 the mag ones, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, how much do you think they're selling for on StockX? I reckon it's about like, Five thousand US at the moment. Yeah, More. go go up. Ten. Thirty-eight and a half. Woo! Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm gonna go back to the future and buy a few more pairs. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. It's, that's crazy, right? So this this resale market is yeah, massive. Uh, the other one I found I just thought was cool was this is quite recent, but the the Sub Supreme by Louis Vuitton hoodie, mm. uh, which is selling for seven thousand dollars. Yeah, right. Thank you, sir. Um, so yeah, it's I guess it comes back to brand and mm. the brand name carries mm. a lot of weight. Obviously, these are unique styles that are very cool that people have been asking for, and then mm. when it comes out, they just want it, and it's it's obviously driving a lot of demand and not much supply. Um, but it really makes you think about how strong these brands are in fashion and how people can really leverage just a brand and association with a brand to drive super high prices. Yeah, definitely. And I think um, for those of you listening that have ever walked past a sneaker store and you see people camping out like you would for an iPhone back in the day, chances are they're waiting for a, a new sneaker, which they're predicting is going to be on trend, mm. uh, which they can hold on to as stock, physical stock to sell on this stock market for, from StockX, which is really cool. Um, I think the cool thing about that as well is that oftentimes it'll have a halo effect on the rest of the brand. So mm. they'll oftentimes still keep sneakers at a certain price point because they know that if they generate enough hype over resale, that almost acts like free media to the right people and mm. the right people being really, really hardcore influencers and advocates yeah. of your product. So if you think it's, it's an interesting to think about as a marketer where if you know something is going to go potentially viral in the resale market, 
it's almost like doing a really targeted media buy. Mm. Um, and you're going to be targeting really heavy users of your product and it's going to be seen within those people, which will, go, will have a halo effect on the rest of your core brand as well. Yeah, I think you, you can think about, uh, yeah, what are those hits going to be? What do you think? You know, when Nike made this Back to the mm. Future shoe, they they probably knew that there were people asking for it because they thought mm. it was cool since the movie and, and, you know, that when they launched it, it was going to go crazy. So think about that when you with your supply and go, how many of these am I actually going to make? And am I going to drop them all at once? Mm. Or am I going to drop, like just drip out 10 of them and then mm. wait six months and then do another limited release. And, and every time you do that, people are just going to talk about it. It's yeah. going to go nuts. It's a huge PR story that you can, that you can use to drive some more brand awareness. Yeah, definitely. I think, um, speaking of brand awareness, uh, goes on to one of the most hot topics in marketing, which is the use of influencers, mm. um, and also celebrities and models. Now, when I think about this in the world of fashion marketing, I always think of it like a horizontal flow or a line where you have celebrities that flow onto influencers, which then just flow onto models which are used in fashion campaigns. However, if you start from, I guess, arguably the bottom of that funnel, a model can also be an influencer and an influencer can also be a celebrity. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> um, so... That being said, if you think about the Kardashians, for example, um, they are celebrities, but they're also influencers, but they're also used in fashion campaigns as models, um, particularly within Calvin, a lot of Calvin Klein commercials, mm. for example. Um, and it's a really interesting use of influencers within fashion marketing for that reason, because they're used as uh, functional assets, but just them being used as a functional asset, like a model, which you'd have to do anyway within a fashion campaign, generates a lot of hype and awareness, especially when you then amplify it via social through a targeted social mm. campaign. Um, but oftentimes in marketing, we're all often thinking about, well, you know, are we getting a good return on investment on influencers and what uh, reach are they driving for different brands? And particularly within the world of fashion, having the right influencer can have a huge return on investment. Mm. Um, so particularly within the world of the Kardashians, they are arguably trendsetters within this world and because they're trendsetters um and they have been for for a number of years uh they are spa they've they've spanned almost different spin-off brands which are responding to different things that they're wearing on social media so for example um bike shorts have become a category or a trend which have recently grown after some kardashians posted themselves wearing different bike shorts with different outfits um, and because of that and because they're different styles and trends there have been all these different small brands that are notably direct to consumer, which have popped up, mm. um, that can offer those similar styles at a lower price for people than they're seeing mm. them on Instagram. So some of the top brands that have fallen out of this have been a brand called Pretty Little Thing, another one called Misguided, another one called Boohoo, um, and Mark, I know your personal favorite, Nasty Gal. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, I mean, first of all, I don't know how the Kardashians found out about my bike shorts and they used know. that to set a trend. That's really funny, but, you know, I wear them when I ride in and I don't know. That's, <laughs> it's, <laughs> I feel like I started that trend. Yeah, definitely. Um, but the, the, the nasty gal. <laughs> it's just is, what a name. But it's so funny because I, as you know, I ride my bike yeah. to work. 
and they have just specifically done a media buy on the back of buses. So whenever I'm riding through the city and I'm stuck behind the bus, it's just this nasty gal ad. And they, they've literally used one model. Yeah. So, and then they just put her in different clothes on different ads. So I feel like I have this relationship with this person on the back of the bus because I see her every morning and she's always wearing different clothes. It's like, I, it's just weird. Um, so interestingly, um, the uh, top... Uh, fashion brand that was the most searched for in 2018 was actually a uh, brand within this category that's been kind of helped by the Kardashians, which is called Fashion Nova. And that was the top fashion brand searched on, wow. online in 2018. Um, so if we think about the return on investment influences, you know, the going market rate for a Kardashian post at this point is almost a million dollars, like, mm. which is pretty crazy. And any marketer managing any budget will go, well, what are we getting for a million dollars? It's a lot of money. <laughs> it's a lot of money. And, you know, how many people are going to see it? But considering these guys have so much influence um, within this space, you might actually get a really big return on investment mm. for it, um, which is really fascinating. Yeah. And to be fair, that might be your campaign. Yeah. It's just million bucks, Kardashian, and that's enough. So it, it's, it seems crazy, but it, it could be enough in this fashion world to, to get you sort of the visibility that you need. Yeah. But this influencer thing isn't new in fashion. And no. actually some of the, the biggest trends in fashion that still exist today and have become, I guess, just fashion staples have come from celebrities doing things. Yeah. So the one that I've got uh, that was really uh, I had never thought of before was Audrey Hepburn, who mm. was the one to start wearing the little, little black, black yeah. dress. Uh, which is now just such a like a, a staple in mm. any woman's uh, wardrobe is, mm. is that little and maybe some men as well, mm. Mark. Um, but uh, is that little little black dress? So yeah, this this isn't new. It's just been amplified by platforms like uh, Instagram and 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 other social media platforms. Yeah, no, definitely. And um, yes, one one to think about that if you are a, a small player, you know, in a different industry that's not fashion, you know, what kind of influences or, or opinion leaders are there that you can look to that have that broad reach and that guidance that can maybe inform your innovation plan, either mm. short term or long term, that you can maybe partner with it and learn from and, and think about what they think is going to be cool six months from now. Um, but also, if you want to think about doing a really targeted paid promotion, if you think you're going to get the return on investment for it, if you look at the rate versus what reach and engagement you might get out of it might be a good thing to think about yeah i think there's a lot of ways we could learn from these influences and and the audiences that they have because you might take that next time and go okay uh you know the type of clothing i have is something that kim kardashian has worn before yeah. and her audience loved it um instead of getting kim kardashian what i'm going to do is analyze her audience and see how that compares to my target audience and then use that as a targeting metric so you can start to hit these same people that would be interested in similar things to to your brand um the other thing you can look at in targeting and fashion i guess is a lot of it's about tiers, as we said, price mm. tiers, brand tiers. So maybe looking at disposable income mm. as something that you want to target on. And that's not possible through all third parties, but for some, you can actually go through sort of, uh, yeah, based on where people live and, and sort of disposable income, you can start to target that way as well. Yeah, definitely. And lots mm. of really cool stuff to think about, um, especially within the DTC space as well. Mm. So, you know, knowing that if you are leveraging I guess, tr traditional digital influencers, they will be living on digital platforms. Mm. And if you have really good e-commerce capability, which we know from speaking about supply chain earlier, probably mm. a really important thing you should be thinking about in the world of fashion. Um, it's a really organic shift for people to see something and then click through to purchase, which yeah. is why 
a lot of these brands that have fallen out of uh, people like the Kardashians being on trend have been really popular and have had some amazing success. Yeah, they're, they're, they're available and, and ready to buy straight away as soon as you see it, which is, as we know, super important. Yeah, exactly. I think, um, you know, speaking of that, like another really big play which uh, a lot of fashion brands have used, which is we've learned from other characters as well, is um, the role of heritage. So mm. the, some of these brands that we spoke about are extremely new and they're you know, playing on the fact that they are new and because they knew they're able to be really speedy and quick to these different innovations and can reinvent themselves based on the data um, that they're seeing really, really quickly in, in lifetime, which is a great advantage to themselves. But a lot of the bigger name fashion brands, um, you know, know that they maybe can't do that as quickly, um, but what they can do is play on their heritage um, and the fact that they've been around for a really long time um, and turning potentially that weakness into a strength mm. so we know that for example a lot of fashion brands like for example louis vuitton uh play a lot of times on their really rich history um and their and their cultural history as well they've been around for so long they've served many different purposes in many different product categories um for different uses for a long time and when they charge a price premium you can feel like you're a part of that you can feel like you're a part of this really uh big journey and they can talk through that story as well yeah i think uh yeah, their, their strength is almost not being one of those small brands in, in a way that those smaller brands, you might just want to purchase online and have it delivered where mm. you kind of want to go to a Louis Vuitton store. Like yeah. it's an event. Yeah. <laughs> if you're purchasing, purchasing something from them, it's probably a once in a lifetime experience and you might want to go and be served the champagne and have it monogrammed and all of that yeah. kind of thing. So that sort of in-store experience is, is still extremely relevant for those heritage brands as well. Um, but something else I found as well is if you have that heritage, leverage it as much as you can yeah. into like other industries even. I mean, Louis Vuitton, there was a Louis Vuitton Moet Chandon um, champagne, yeah. uh, which I love because it's all owned by the same company, yeah. LVMH. <laughs> uh, so that was, they were just like the two brand managers looked at each other and were like, what if? <laughs> There's probably a huge crossover in consumer as well. They're probably a high-fived over the champagne cooler. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the other thing that uh, Louis Vuitton does, I know we're talking about them a lot, but they're sort of the biggest heritage fashion brand is... Um, travel guides mm. so they know that people who use their luggage and their very expensive trunks travel a lot so then there's a guide for you uh, as a distinguished person mm. to go overseas and read this guide and know what to do yeah no very very interesting and um cool way to branch out into different synergies and, and keep growing and growing incrementally because mm. Louis Vuitton probably would never have the opportunity to go uh, into those different categories without that resonance with the consumer and also with these adjacent brands as well, which is really, really cool. Yeah, they've sort of, they've kept their core and, you know, you see the same sort of design language going through a lot of their stuff, but they've also modernized over the years and moved into ready-to-wear clothes and yeah. these travel guides and all sorts of stuff. And that's, I guess, how they've ma maintained that position as a top 20 uh, brand in, yeah. in fashion. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Um, now, I think maybe let's also look into some case studies as to how uh, these principles have come into play. Um, Mark, what have you found, I guess, in the world of fashion marketing? Yeah, I, I went a bit rogue on this one. Uh, <laughs> it's uh, What I loved so much about studying fashion marketing was that some of the, these brands are just cool brands that do cool stuff and people just want to buy into that as almost like a lifestyle choice. Uh, and I think uh, an, an example of a brand that has done a really good job of that over the years is Converse. Mm. So Converse is, yeah, a, a sneaker, um, the same design over many, many, many years. 
and whilst they've been the same all the time, you've had all of these crazy limited edition high top sneakers from Nike and Adidas coming along and sort of selling a lot of shoes, right? And Converse is sitting there not doing that. Um, but what Converse believes in is uh, it's not about the shoe itself. It's about what the person who wears the shoe is doing. Mm. That's what they want to celebrate as a brand. And therefore, they don't need to do that other stuff. They, they just need to drive that culture that people will buy into. So what they did in 2015 was launch the Rubber Tracks Recording Studio mm. in America. And essentially what this was was a recording studio for young artists because they identified that people who buy Converse are usually into music. And it's a, it's a very common shoe to wear at music festivals mm. and worn by musicians. Uh, and they said, we're going to open this recording studio. Any upcoming band, you can come here, record for free. Uh, and we don't own any of the song or anything you create. You just come and record here. It's just purely mm. like a cool thing that they were doing. Mm. Um, and they just did this for a few years. And then after a few years, they opened two more studios and kept doing it. Then they launched a online sample library for upcoming like digital musicians who wanted to use samples. Mm. So they're really just ingraining themselves in this music culture and just sort of being a really cool brand. Um, and having relevance with new audience was with something like music, which is always relevant to, to new young people. Um, but what that evolved into is eventually they found, they used this to leverage a campaign where they found 84 emerging acts globally. Mm. Uh, and they, they gave them access to 12 iconic studios around the world and paired those acts up with some legendary music icons in the studio to create wow. music together. Um, all sponsored by Converse. Um, and then teaming up with Noisy, they, um, they actually made a docu-series following around some of these acts to on their road to stardom. So mm. going to shows, going to recording with them, and just made all this great content. And you and I both know that these days content is king. And if yeah. you can get those assets and sweat those assets, it's, um, it's, it's very valuable for your brand. So it started as something that was just kind of cool that they wanted to do for their consumer. And it's become this huge identity for them as a brand and and you know you go onto their website their social media anything and you see all this just fantastic content that they've made and it just reinforces in your mind that if i'm going to a music festival or if i'm a, in a band converse is the shoe that i wear yeah definitely and i think um we should hopefully record an episode of the podcast there so converse, converse if you're listening <laughs> we're both wearing we're both wearing a pair <laughs> um <laughs> and if you found at the show <laughs> yeah we'd, we'd love to record in the studio yeah i definitely need to buy some more high tops <laughs> <laughs> um yeah i think really really awesome case study mm. and just cool marketing <laughs> yeah right <laughs> yeah um i think uh, a case study i found was for the uh Nupsi puffer jacket by by North Face, so mm. it's a bit chilly here in Winter Sydney at the moment. So I was like trying to find something relevant that will keep me warm mentally um, as we were researching. So the Nutsi puffer jacket, and I'm not sure if I'm going to be pronouncing that correctly, um, <laughs> is was the original large puffer jacket that was launched by North Face uh, in in the early 1990s, um, and it was uh, a puffer jacket that was originally launched to used in the Arctic and to keep you really, really warm in very extreme conditions. Mm. And, and it was named after a mountain that is uh, a neighbor to Mount Everest. So really strong mountain functional heritage credentials. Mm. Um, however, when it was launched, it started to become really popular in New York within the mid to, to early 90s um, because New York has some really harsh winters and people found that they could wear this jacket and stay really, really warm while they were doing their errands. Mm. Um, and... 
it was interesting because the reason that people were uh, staying warm is that the core innovation within the puffer jacket was that it was filled with this thing called 700 downfill, which is essentially just a lot of uh, downfill within the jacket. It's kind of like wearing a really big blanket, mm. but that functionality, that technology and that innovation is what gave the jacket that big puffed up look, mm. which is a really, really cool silhouette in itself. So people in New York, you know, being really on, on, on the ball when it comes to fashion, had seen that they're like, we can stay really warm and look pretty cool with this like different silhouette. All puffed up. Yeah, exactly it. So um, interestingly, at the time, there were some other fashion items which were becoming popular in New York winters for this reason as well. So a lot of them were like uh, really strong and, and heavy baggy denim, but also Timberland boots. Um, which were also heritage within the workwear space because mm. they could keep you really protected. Um, but because of the puffer jacket nation and the stance, it started to become really popular by rappers uh, that were New York mm. based at the time. So for example, they were made really popular by Notorious B.I.G. because he was seen wearing the, the jacket and also Nas was seen wearing the jacket in New York and it gave them this awesome attitude because of the, the, the unique silhouette and shape. Um, and even Missy Elliott was uh, was seen, you know, using the jacket in a lot of music videos and, and seen around town. Um, and the thing I love about this is that something that was a, you know, a, a, a need or a functional innovation actually became an aesthetic and a style innovation mm. in and of itself. And the cool thing is that North Face just ran with it. They're like, you know what? Yeah, we know we're, we're technically just a mountain functional based brand. But if people in the streets are, you know, liking this product, they saw a new stream and they really open the doors and release in many different colors that maybe weren't always going to be used on the mountain. Um, but they really knew that and they were honest with it and really catered to that market. So I thought that was really, really, really cool. Yeah. And it's always been 30 years uh, later and they're relaunching the jacket. They're really bringing it back out there again. And uh, they've done a collab with a really big streetwear brand called Supreme. Um, and the cool thing about it is that they've played heritage, the original Nipsey jacket, but They've done it in an all leather version, which is quite cool. Because wow. if you look at North Face's entire Nupsi puffer jacket portfolio, you have your base models, you have your cool prints, which are charged for a little bit extra. You have some others that have some more premium features. And then you have this awesome leather one, which um, offers trade up within the category as well yeah. of, of puffer jackets. I, I really want to see this leather puffer jacket. Yeah. <laughs> I actually can't picture it. <laughs> I, I don't know how functional it's going to be um, within the mountains, but you'd look pretty cool if you did do it. Look, if they make it in Fuchsia Pink, come in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I guess the, the lesson from that is if you're working in a brand or you have a business, um, which you're seeing maybe an unexpected growth stream come through, whether it's small or large, I think just being really flexible and open to that and seeing where it might lead you because... You never know, you could have another puffer jacket success story in your hands. Yeah, I, I think also on the same sort of thought is uh, be aware of it and see where it goes. But if it doesn't align with your brand at yeah. all, maybe you want to stop. I, yeah. There's so many stories. I think that my favorite was Patagonia has stopped making bespoke uh, yeah. vests for investment banking firms. Because yeah. they're, they're sort of like, uh, it's a revenue stream for us, but yeah. we don't, you know, they're sort of the opposite of investment banks as a brand yeah no definitely definitely keep an eye out and who understanding who your core consumer is mm. i think it comes down to mm. um but yeah mark i think we've learned a lot about fashion marketing and i think yeah. there's going to be um some awesome spin-off episodes from this research that we've done in terms of um some more detailed elements of it and i'm looking forward to doing that later on yeah me too fashion is just massive so we could do so many podcasts on this area yeah exactly um 
But as always, we know that as marketers, we need to stay curious um, uh, within the world. Um, so based on that, what have you found interesting this week? Look, I want to introduce you to a new segment here on the marketing show, yeah. which is called Mark's Top Cooking Tips. Oh, nice. So a bit of a caveat uh, is that my microwave broke in my new apartment. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I've, the annoying thing is I've been bragging about it because it's this like cool microwave that's also an oven. You yeah, flick it. Right. Anyway, the like third time we use a microwave, it broke. Uh, <laughs> and so we've been without microwave this week and, you know, after work, meals, late at night, often we just heat stuff up yeah. like leftovers and we weren't able to do that. So what I did this week was I was actually just buying fresh veggies after work mm. and then I was just putting it in a tray. So you think you've got like maybe some broccolini, some mm. potatoes, uh, maybe even some zucchini flowers we experimented mm. with one day. A little bit of oil, a bit of salt, maybe mm. even some sort of balsamic vinegar. Mm. Chuck that in the oven for about half an hour at 180 degrees Celsius. Mm. And you just pull that out, put that on some like leaves that you yeah. buy from the store, and you've got a delicious dinner really wow. quick. So super fast cooking, um, but just freshly baked veggies. Mm. It was delicious. So... It's just a bit of a tip that if wow. you're thinking of something to change it up during the week that doesn't take up a bunch of time, mm. just chuck some veggies in the oven with some oil and salt and you've got yourself a really delicious meal. Um, for the pros out there, mm. just as you're finishing off the baking and it's, the time is nearly up, just chuck some halloumi in a pan. Mm. Um, you know, just let that in there for a few minutes, turn mm. it over, chuck that on top of your salad with your veggies and you've got a delicious meal. Wow. I'm... <laughs> This is an awesome new segment. <laughs> we, we should probably stop recording this before dinner. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It. Um, I think uh, as 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 a as a non culinary person, uh, I need to ask. You know, you know what inspired you to use broccolini versus traditional broccoli? Yeah, it's um, interesting. I actually learned this week that broccolini is a fusion between broccoli and, and another vegetable, which is virtually unknown. I can't even remember the name. Wow. Yeah, so it's like a hybrid vegetable. It was a, it was a merchant acquisition. <laughs> yeah, it, was, it was a brand partnership that yeah. just went so well. I love that the idea of like, there was this like, vegetable startup <laughs> and they were like busy coding away and then they got absorbed and bought out and now that original vegetable that was absorbed by broccolini it was is like a on a beach somewhere <laughs> in the Caribbean just sipping they sold out no it was actually came from a trend agency they saw that people were really liking vegetables that were shaped like miniature trees <laughs> yeah it's a growing category exactly um no so yeah um broccolini super fun super wow. great yeah I, I love it fantastic mm. Um, uh, I'm moving from broccolini to music. Um, I have been, I found, found really interesting this week. I've been listening to, uh, this 19 year old reggae artist on repeat this week called Coffee. Um, and if you're searching for it, it's Coffee with a K. Um, highly recommend, uh, checking her out. She is, she is this awesome, awesome artist coming out of Jamaica. And all the songs are like incredibly positive, but they're positive with attitude. And mm. like, the ways in which like she's i guess rapping and singing at the same time along to really modern rhythmic beats like it's it's music to be played out loud and especially at breakfast and mm. i think that there she strikes this really awesome balance within the world of rap of being quite like confident um and 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 positively bragging at points but also being really humble um mm. and 
it's it's been an awesome experience to kind of dive in and, and see this artist start to unfold so early in their career. Um, and I highly, highly recommend checking her out if you get a chance. And if you need a bit of a pick me up, or if you're at the gym, or even if you're just making breakfast and you need a little bit of a uh, a morning boost, yeah, ch- check it out. It's, it's then there's a whole world of like uh, new reggaeton artists like coming out of there. So yeah. Check, check it on Spotify. Yeah, look, I've heard that coffee's music really perks you up. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> um, but it sounds like a great way to spend the weekend. Bacon, some vegetables, listening to coffee's music. It's, yeah. It's just a good way to live. Exactly. <laughs> um, but yeah, as, uh, you know, all, as all things, it's, it's, it's best with um, art and food. So, yeah. <laughs> um, and on that note, uh, thanks, guys, uh, for listening and thanks for joining our learning journey. Um, if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a five-star review and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Yeah, thank you very much.